Well, first of all, can I give my apologies uh, about this talk? This was one of those Thursday re- afternoon rewrites. Uh, so I'd given the uh, week to do it. I had a whole talk ready. And then on Thursday, decided that it was very, very right, very proper, very accurate. But it didn't really say anything. Uh, so forgive me if this is a bit rough around the edges. But God has convicted me through the week, uh, as I've tried to live out this psalm, that this is really important. As we see David write this incredibly personal psalm. David writes this psalm when trouble has struck, when trouble hits. His case is really quite personal. He's been betrayed by a friend. Did you notice that as we read through? It's a quite specific circumstance. But I'm sure that many of us have faced that in our lives, betrayal by a close friend. But all of us have faced time when trouble strikes, haven't we? The loss of a loved one, the loss of a beloved pet, the loss of a job, a moral failure in our lives. You know those moments when you just want the ground to open up and swallow you? Those moments when you want to run under the covers and just pull them over you and just hide there? Those moments when you just want to get in your car and just drive? But when trouble strikes, how do we respond? Well, David shows us here in this psalm that when trouble hits, it really boils down to two choices. In each and every trial that we face, there are two ways that we can go. We can run to God in prayer, or we can run away from God to something else. We see this, don't we, uh, in verses 4 to 6 of that psalm. My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had the wings of a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Don't we know that feeling? David wants to sprout wings and fly away. But actually, instead, he comes to God in prayer, doesn't he? That's what we see throughout the whole psalm. Now, we already know that that's the right response, don't we, to turn to God. So I'm not going to patronise you for the next half an hour. But I'm aware that we don't do that always, do we? I've watched myself this week not do that in circumstances when I should have done. Time and again, I've run to other things rather than to God. So we're going to spend our time looking at this psalm this morning, understanding why we don't run to God and why we should run to God. So our first heading is run to God in prayer. Run to God in prayer. Have a look at verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You see here that David is telling us that we need to cast our burden on the Lord, that we need to run to God in prayer. And if you think about it, the whole psalm really is David doing that, isn't it? David is talking to God throughout the psalm in verses 1 to 5, in verses 16 to 19. Most of the psalm is a prayer to God, talking to him, casting his burden on him. So he doesn't just command us to do it, he shows us himself doing it. You also imagine David thinking this through. I mean, we know that David has written this out, haven't we? I don't know if you ever write out your prayers. I do it from time to time. It allows you to sit down and think and mull over and get the words right. But David here is is pouring out his heart on paper. But he's pouring out his heart, really, to God. But as we see what David prays about, we see that David prays for things that we would never pray for, doesn't he? Do you see there where he talks about the terrors of death that we read uh, a few moments ago? 
Uh, Verse 5, fear and trembling come upon me and horror overwhelms me. You think this is more the sort of thing of horror movies, don't you? But not out of the mouths of Christians. It sounds too much like it's, uh, you know, not quite faithful enough, isn't it? It's more the sort of thing you'd hear on the Blair Witch Project. I've never watched that film, but it's basically somebody filming themselves with a camera. And the horror, the terror that he's facing. We can see that in a horror film, can't we? But we don't often talk to God like that. It seems too untrusting, as though things aren't going right and they should be going right. But other people in the Bible do, don't they? Paul does in 2 Corinthians. You'll see this verse on the back of your sheet. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. For we're so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death. Does that seem weird to you, hearing Christians, hearing believers talk like that? You see, we might say those things, those things to ourselves inside. We might just about even say those things to a close friend that we're feeling terrified. Yet we hesitate to say that to God. As if it's somehow not proper to bring those feelings before God, that we're, we're scared, that we're hurting, that we're wondering what to do. As if God doesn't know how we're feeling. As if God doesn't want to come to him with the real hard emotion that we have. As if God expects us to come to him in some sort of sanitised version of ourselves. We scream to ourselves, oh, what on earth am I going to do? And then we come to God and we say, we thank you, God, for making this day. I pray that you bless so and so. And oh, by the way, help. Somebody wrote that the Psalms are there in part to keep us real. They remind us that expressing emotion to God is okay. It's okay to pray like David did. But hang on though, you might be thinking, well it's okay to pray like David did, but he might pray in a way that we might never think of praying, but he also prays for things that we would never ask for. I mean, look at verses 9 to 11. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it, around its walls. And iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. Hard hitting stuff there, isn't it? All the way through, he's asking God to destroy his enemies. There he's saying, do a babel on them. Confuse their languages. Bury them alive in the sun. Let them go down to Sheol alive. Let the ground swallow them up as it did with Aaron's sons. Cast them into a pit of destruction there in verse 23. Now prayer meetings would be a bit more lively, wouldn't they, if we prayed, <laughs> prayed like this. Well, two things. We, we know there's something not quite right there, don't we? But we need to bear in mind two things. First thing is that enemies are, re- are a reality for David, aren't they? It would be weird for David to pray in the face of enemies coming to take his life, to pray for his auntie's dodgy hip, wouldn't it? Of course he's going to pray about this. How often do we ignore the glaring things in our lives and pray about relative trivialities? We talk about the weather, we talk about politics, don't we, when we meet up with a friend. And then we mention at the end, oh by the way, my life's falling apart. It's a bit daft, isn't it? But we all do it to some degree and we certainly do it with God. But we shouldn't. If there's a big thing in our life, if there's something that is making us scared, that is worrying about, uh, making us worry... 
then we need to bring it to God. And what is David supposed to pray about these people that are coming to seek his life? You know, safe travel? No. He's going to pray for himself to be rescued, which means his enemies being stopped. That's the first thing we need to bear in mind. They were reality for David, weren't they? But we also need to think about what his motive is for praying. Have a look at verses 9 to 11 again. Destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues, for I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around it on its walls, and iniquity and trouble are within it. Ruin is in its midst. Oppression and fraud do not depart from its marketplace. What's David's motive for praying for his enemies to be destroyed? Well, violence, oppression, corruption. See, David here is not advocating violence. He's asking God to stop the violence. He wants God to make the ground swallow it up. He wants them to confuse their languages, anything, just to stop them from the violence, for the corruption that they're doing. And remember that David is God's chosen king, isn't he? To stand with David is to stand with God. These are standing against God, standing against all that's true. So it's not wrong to pray in this way if we think about it in terms of praying for justice in our world. For praying for the writings of wrongs, perhaps even personal ones. For an end to violence. So think about it. We pray, don't we, that God would get rid of ISIS. We pray that God would get rid of dictators all across the world. And it's okay to pray like that as long as we remember that we do not war against flesh and blood. That actually we understand what we're really praying for. So long as we leave it to God and don't think that this is something that we ought to do ourselves. You see, this is not advocating revenge or violence by Christians. Actually, this is David leaving it with God. But we want God to stop his enemies, don't we? We want them to stop harming others and ourselves. Now that might be God stops them through judgment. It might be that God stops them through repentance. They might turn around. A wise person once said, do I not destroy my enemies if I make them my friends? So really what we're praying for here is that Jesus would come and right the wrongs, isn't it? That Jesus would come either to save or to judge. We're praying for Jesus to come back, really. That's where the psalm is going. So if it's on our hearts, if there's something big like this that's worrying us, that's hurting us, it's okay to pray about it. God wants us to run to him, whatever condition we're in, whatever emotion we're experiencing, whatever is affecting us. And he commands us to, did you see that there in verse 22? Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. God will help us, God will sustain us, God will help us stand, but we must run to him. Because the other option is to run away from God to something else. To run away from God to something else. Have a look at verses 3 to 8. Because of the noise of the enemy. Sorry, I'll I'll start from verse 4. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Because of the noise of the enemy. Because of the oppression of the wicked. For they drop trouble upon me. And in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. 
I would hurry to find a shelter from the raging wind and tempest. David here is scared, isn't he? It's not hard to understand why. He's been betrayed by a close friend. We see that in verses 12 to 14. Someone that he'd been close to. Someone who he'd been to the temple with. So even they were showing some sort of religiosity. They seem to be on the same page. We don't know their identity, just that it's a friend and seemingly a fellow believer. And he's been taken in by him. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was as smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. You see the smooth talk, this friend? But all the time, he's been waiting to stab him in the back. It's a complete betrayal of David by this person. And now the mob are after him. We see that in verses 3 to 5, they're coming to get him. Perhaps this is similar to the other Psalms that we've seen, Psalm 52, Psalm 54, where a betrayer has alerted David's enemies to his whereabouts. Either way, all that we know is that David is in mortal danger. So now he wants to run away. He tells us that in verses 6 to 8. He wants to fly away into the wilderness. And that's a common human response, isn't it, when we hit trials, when we hit troubles? I was thinking about this week of all the songs that have been written about flying away. Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz. Or if you're a little bit older, uh, One Day I'll Fly Away by Randy Crawford. Or just think about the songs where the theme is, yeah, Getting Away, Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, all those different songs. It's a human emotion to, to want to escape. Or think of all the films that have been written about escapes uh, and getting out of situations. Uh, I could only think of Shirley Valentine this week, which is a film that my mum used to watch. Um, I asked Facebook, and uh, it turns out there are a lot of films uh, with escapes. I think probably the, the best one that illustrates it, though, Forrest Gump. You know the situation, Jenny, his friend, dies, sets off running. And he keeps running, and he keeps running, and he keeps running. Because that's a natural human response, isn't it? To, to run away, to fly away. How often, when trouble hits us, is this our immediate gut response? Run, fly, flee. But most of us don't, though, do we? I don't know of many people who've actually done a runner. I've met some homeless people, and they have. They've run away from their home. They've run away from uh, their background. But I imagine that most of us have never really done that. Or have we? You see, we can run away mentally and emotionally without running away physically. If for David the temptation was flying away like a dove, I think probably for us in the 21st century it's that we bury our heads in the sand like an ostrich. We fly away mentally and emotionally. Trouble hits and our heads check out of the room. We're there, but we're not really there. We mentally run away rather than confronting the problem. And again, I've seen this again and again this week in my own life. Trouble comes and I, I put on the box set. Or trouble comes and I organise my study. Or trouble comes and I write my sermon. These things are not bad things, but we can bury ourselves in them, can't we, to avoid dealing with the issues that need to be dealt with. We can bury ourselves in work, in duties, in distractions. That's that we can bury ourselves in bad things, can't we, in revenge, in alcohol, in pornography. 
But we can bury ourselves in good things too. Either way, we bury ourselves. We hide ourselves from the truth. We fly away mentally. All to avoid dealing with the problem. All to avoid bringing it to God and bringing God to it. When trouble hits, actually, sometimes we can feel like God is the last person that we want to go to. We know that we should, but we somehow don't feel that we want to. It's not that we blame God, it's just that somehow God seems far away. But he's the very person that we need. And the very person that we subconsciously seek to avoid. So to deal with the problem, we must bring it to God, as David tells us, and bring God to it. Now that will probably mean pain that we would rather suppress. Emotions that we would rather not feel. It's easier to dull the pain with distraction, isn't it? But it doesn't solve the problem. These things have a way of affecting us long term, don't they, if we don't deal with them. So friends, we mustn't run away from God to other things. However good, however noble they are, we mustn't bury our heads in the sand. We mustn't fly away mentally from our troubles. God wants to use our troubles to grow us. God wants to be there for us in our troubles. So don't seek other things. Seek after God. So in conclusion then we have two choices. We can hide ourselves away or we can seek God in prayer. We can hide or seek. Which will it be? Can this really be done? Can we really not go to other things? Well, let's think about the Lord Jesus for a moment. Jesus was faced with a very similar situation to David, wasn't he? Betrayal by a close friend. Someone who he'd lived with for three years. Someone who he'd eaten with. Someone who he'd taught, who he'd loved. What was Jesus' response to this? Well, in your Bibles, if you just turn to Matthew 26 for a few moments. How did Jesus respond to this? Maybe 20 to 25. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So do you see the setting here is betrayal. A close friend, Judas, has betrayed him. And then look down to uh, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then down to 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See what Jesus does in the face of betrayal? Judas there is going to betray him. 
Judas comes to betray him, and what does Jesus do? He prays to his father. This is the same section, the bit in between that we missed, where Peter is going to deny him. What does Jesus do? He runs to the father. He runs to his father. He has the option to run away, doesn't he? Just think further down in Matthew 26, 52. Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that this must be so? You ever thought of that? Jesus could have called the angels, couldn't he, to stop it. could have stopped Judas. But instead, he prays. He turns to his father. He stays and prays. And in Jesus, we see the ultimate fulfilment of this psalm. Even more than David, he shows us what to do. And models for us what to do in the face of trials. Jesus is sorrowful, but he comes to his father. He stays and prays rather than runs and hides. So brothers and sisters, this morning we need to stay and pray. We need to seek and not hide. We need to run to God and not away from him. We need to cast our burdens on God because he cares for us. That God would give us the same strength to stay and pray. That God would enable us to cast our cares on him when we face trials. That we would run to him when trouble strikes. Amen.